Well, we come now to the preaching of God's word. And for this Sunday and next, we're going to give our attention to a somewhat controversial doctrine. One that has divided believers throughout the centuries and even divides believers to this day. Namely, the doctrine of election. And the question at the heart of this debate is this. Who is sovereign in salvation? Who is ultimately in control of man's eternal destiny? Is it God or is it man? And as we'll see, what's at stake in this discussion isn't only the truth of Scripture, but is actually also God's glory. The ultimate purpose of all of redemptive history is the glory of God. And so, is God most glorified in sovereignly electing some for salvation while also sovereignly passing over others, guaranteeing his elect would be the beneficiaries of his saving grace, apart from which none would or could be saved, rendering God sovereign in salvation from start to finish? Or is God most glorified in limiting the full expression of his divine sovereignty by elevating the free agency of man to a position of ultimate supremacy so that it governs the entirety of his redemptive plan, rendering man in control of his own destiny. And it's most definitely the former, not the latter. Not only is sovereign election the plain teaching of Scripture, but it also brings the greatest honor and glory of God to God, since it underscores that salvation takes place entirely by his saving grace. Pure, sheer, unmitigated grace. And as we embark on this study together, let's simply demonstrate at the outset that Scripture does in fact teach this doctrine that election is most definitely a scriptural concept. And so what I'm going to do is read a number of portions of scripture without really commenting on them too significantly, just to put this before you, to set it before you as a teaching of scripture, and then we'll get into the nature of it. Consider first the election of Israel. Deuteronomy 7, 6 and following. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but because the Lord loved you. So God chose Israel. How about the election of angels? 1 Timothy 5.21, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen or elect angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. Scripture refers to elect angels. But now let's focus on the election of believers. And these I want you to come with me on. So turn to Ephesians 1. 
I want you to be able to see these verses on the pages of Scripture, even if we don't comment yet on the nature of election. We're just identifying and establishing the fact of it. And so in Ephesians 1, verse 3 and following, and we'll be in Ephesians 1 a couple of times today. Ephesians 1 and verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Skip down to verse 11. There it says, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. We want to look at verses 1 and 2. As we simply place this doctrine of Scripture before us. 1 Peter 1, and verse 1, it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 and following. There, Paul writes, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise, according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. First Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 2 and following. Paul writes, We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of our God and Father, verse 4, knowing... Brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Verse 13 and following. 
There Paul writes, but we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this he called you through our gospel so that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at Colossians chapter three. And what's Interesting about this is that a godly life, a certain way of living is directly tied to God's choice of us. Colossians 3 verse 12 and following says this, so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And so again, our being chosen of God issues forth in an exhortation to live a certain way. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. This is a stunning statement. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Verse 9, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Listen to John 15, 19. It says, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. And one last one, look at Acts 13, 48. Another stunning statement. Acts 13, 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life, believed. As many as had been appointed to eternal life, believed. So scripture undeniably teaches the concept of election. The only question is, what is the nature of it? Does God freely and sovereignly elect us for salvation apart from anything foreseen in us? Or does he elect us on the basis of foreseeing in advance that we would believe in Christ? You see, for many, the idea that God would freely and sovereignly elect some for salvation and not others is a monstrous doctrine that is completely unfair. And so to get God off the hook, they condition God's election of us on what he foresees our response will be, thus conditioning our election on our faith. 
But what we're going to see is that not only does Scripture teach the absolute sovereignty of God in election, but it even anticipates our objection and rebukes us for holding God to a human standard of fairness. So that like Job, we would put our hand over our mouth and acknowledge our insignificance and would confess with the Apostle Paul, oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. And we all said, amen. And so it's with that in view that we're going to see five characteristics of election. Five characteristics of election. So that by the end, we'll have seen this. That election is that aspect of God's eternal decree in which he freely and sovereignly elects certain individuals in union with Christ in eternity past, purely for his own glory and good pleasure, apart from any good foreseen in them, to be saved from the penalty and power of sin and to inherit all the blessings of salvation and eternal life through the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. That's what we're going to see. And the first characteristic is this, the sovereignty of election. The sovereignty of election. But before we get into the sovereignty of God in salvation, let's just consider the sovereignty of God over everything. The sovereignty of God in all things. The Bible declares that God is completely sovereign over everything and depicts him actively and providentially unfolding all that takes place in accord with his divine decree. A decree that is eternal, unconditional, immutable, exhaustive, and efficacious. And the passage that arguably teaches this, captures this, Better than any other is Isaiah 46, 9 and following. And so I want you to turn there. This is arguably the clearest, strongest, most robust declaration by God himself of his own sovereignty. Isaiah 46 Verse 9 and following. God is the preacher. And he declares, Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times thing, things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my purpose from a far country. Truly I have spoken. Truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it. Surely I will do it. So one of the attributes 
that makes God unlike any other is his total sovereignty over everything. Before time began, God declared the end from the beginning, and he did so eternally, unconditionally, immutably, exhaustively, and efficaciously, right down to seemingly random events. The law is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from who? The Lord, Proverbs 16, 33. That God's decree is eternal indicates that it was determined in eternity past, before the foundation of the world. That God's decree is unconditional indicates that it was determined apart from any outside influences. It was entirely shaped by his good pleasure. That God's decree is immutable indicates that it's not subject to change. He has planned it. Surely he will do it. That God's decree is exhaustive indicates that nothing is beyond the bounds of his sovereign decree. In fact, Ephesians 1.11 indicates that he works all things after the counsel of his will. And that God's decree is efficacious means that it's infallible. It cannot fail. God will accomplish all his good pleasure. In fact, listen to the testimony of the Psalms concerning the sovereignty of God. Psalm 24.1, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. He is the owner of everything. Psalm 33.10 and 11 say this, the Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. There's his divine decree, his eternal decree. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. Psalm 115.3. But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. In Psalm 135.6, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all deeps. So God is sovereign over everything, eternally, unconditionally, immutably, comprehensively, and efficaciously. And that most certainly includes his plan of redemption. In fact, how much more his plan of redemption? That is the greatest aspect of his divine decree. That is the, the, the aspect of his divine decree that's going to ultimately shape all of eternity. And so let's consider that for a moment. The sovereignty of God and salvation. And the clearest place to see this is Ephesians 1.11. And so turn there. Because in Ephesians 1.11... What it does is it depicts our being predestined for salvation as a subset or aspect of God's divine decree so that whatever is true of God's divine decree, whatever is true of God's total sovereignty over all things is also true of his plan of redemption, of his saving purpose. And so in Ephesians 1.11, it says we have obtained an inheritance that's a salvific inheritance, 
having been predestined, there's divine sovereignty according to his purpose. This is tied into his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. So God works all things after the counsel of his will, and that includes his predestining purpose in salvation. And that means that everything that can be said of God's divine decree can also be said of his saving purpose. It is eternal, unconditional, immutable, exhaustive, and efficacious. And the characteristics that follow from here are going to sort of accentuate to one degree or another each aspect of these qualities that are bound up in God's sovereignty. That's the sovereignty of election. Now, second, the eternality of election. So here we see the eternal nature of this, the eternality of election. Stay in Ephesians 1, look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Verse 4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Just as God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. So who is the agent of our election? It is God the Father. And what's the action of our election? It's his choice, his sovereign choice. And what's the sphere of our election? It's in Christ, which is the language of union with Christ. So, so God chose us in union with Christ. And what's the time referent of our election? Before the foundation of the world. So before the beginning had even begun, in eternity past, God chose us in union with Christ. A sovereign choice made by God the Father from all eternity. And so our election is bound up in the eternal purposes of God. In fact, turn to 2 Timothy 1 again. And look at verses 8 and 9, which really accentuate this point. Second Timothy 1, verse 8, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me as prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. So God saved us, not according to our works, which is to say, not according to anything good that he foresaw in us, but instead, according to his own purpose and grace. So this is bound up in the sovereign purposes of God, and it's an eternal purpose, since it's that which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Whew. 
put in the language of 2 Thessalonians 2.13, God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. This is eternal. Election isn't only founded on the foundation of God's sovereign choice, it's also bound up in God's eternal purpose. Decreed and established before the foundation of the world. That's the eternality of election. But note this, it's also unconditional, which we've already begun to see. It's unconditional. So note third, the unconditionality of election. The unconditionality of election. And it's here that we're going to begin to interact with some, uh, an opposing view, the opposing view to understanding the doctrine of sovereign election. Turn to Romans chapter 8. A familiar portion of scripture, but critical to address in the context of this discussion. Romans 8. And we want to focus on verse 29, but let's get a running start back in verse 28. Romans 8 and verse 28. Paul writes, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, the word rendered for new can simply mean to know beforehand or in advance of. And it's used that way in 2 Peter 3.17, which says this, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. So there, Peter gives a warning on the basis of advanced knowledge imparted to them in that epistle, saying to them, because you know this is on the horizon, be on guard. And some say that foreknowledge in Romans 8.29 is being used in a similar way that it's simply referring to advanced knowledge, foresight. You say, how so? By asserting that God's foreknowledge isn't rooted in his sovereign predetermined purpose, but instead simply resulted from him knowing what would take place in advance. So they would say that in eternity past, God looked down the corridors of time, foresaw who would believe in Christ, and elected them on the basis of their foreseen faith. And so they transfer the ultimate cause of salvation away from the sovereignty of God and condition it on the so-called free decision of man. So that in election, God is simply ratifying the individual choices that he had advanced knowledge of. 
He is simply ratifying what, what he foresaw would take place. That those throughout human history who would believe on Christ, that on the basis of their faith being foreseen, he elected them. And there are a number of reasons why this cannot mean that. For one, and you've got to dial in for this a little bit, it doesn't say that God foreknew particular facts about individual responses to Christ. It doesn't say that. It says that God foreknew particular individuals. It says for those whom he foreknew, he predestined. And so if we take the foreknowledge spoken of here to refer to nothing more than advanced knowledge, then we're actually left with universalism. Why? Because in that sense, God foreknew every single individual who has ever lived. In his omniscience, he has advanced knowledge of absolutely everyone. And so we'd have to conclude that since God foreknew every single person who would ever live, that he also predestined them to salvation. Because it said those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And he foreknows everyone in that sense. So treating the foreknowledge spoken of here as merely advanced knowledge results in an untenable position that absolutely everyone who has ever been born, including those who are currently awaiting the lake of fire, will be saved. For two, it would render... 1 Peter 1.20, where the same word is used, utterly absurd. Look at 1 Peter 1.20. You can see this. Exact same word. Being applied to Christ. And this comes on the heels of God's foreknowledge referenced in verses 1 and 2. But look at 1 Peter 1.20. It says, For he, referring to Christ, was foreknown, same word, before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God. So what happens if we apply the notion of simple foreknowledge or advanced knowledge to verse 20? we would be left to conclude that in eternity past, God looked down the corridor of human history, saw in advance what Jesus was going to do, that he would die on a cross and rise from the grave and therefore appointed him as our savior. That Christ's coming and his death and resurrection isn't the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God in the sense of sovereignly appointing the, the, the accomplishment of our salvation, but instead God was looking down the corridor of human history and learning what Christ would do, and then modifying the salvific plan in accord with what God saw. Again, that's absurd. 
Peter says elsewhere that Jesus was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Acts 2.23, and that's a sovereign predetermined plan. A sovereign foreknowledge. So what does foreknowledge refer to in Romans 8.29? Well, it can also be rendered to choose beforehand. So it doesn't always have the sense of merely being advanced knowledge. To choose beforehand, and it refers to, quote, an intimate covenant relationship grounded in God's sovereign choice and marked by his favor and love. This is an intimate foreknowledge. This is an intensely personal foreknowledge, a sovereign foreknowledge. There are particular individuals whom God foreknew and purposed to bring them into an intimate covenant relationship with him, grounded on his sovereign choice and marked by his favor and love. And those whom God chose beforehand to be with him in this covenant relationship, he also predestined the ultimate outcome, the ultimate end, guaranteeing the the full reality of it. Which isn't just the salvation that we enjoy now, but reaches all the way into the the full consummation of that salvation in eternity future. He sovereignly predetermined the perfection of the final outcome. But if that weren't enough, and you were not yet convinced, turn to Romans 9 for a moment, which provides the exclamation point on the unconditional nature of God's sovereign election, that it's not conditioned on faith at all. Romans 9, verse 10 and following. And not only this, Paul says, but there was Rebecca also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. If there was ever a time to indicate that God's election of particular individuals for salvation was conditioned on their foreseen faith. This was it. Elsewhere, when Paul talks about works and contrasts works with something, what does he do? He contrasts it with faith. He does that in multiple places, in Romans and elsewhere. In fact, listen to one in Galatians, Galatians 2.16. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus... Even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Paul is demonstrating the 
incongruity of works and faith. They are incongruent. They are antithetical. And so in Romans 9.11, when Paul writes, so that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand, not because of works, we're conditioned to expect what? But because of faith. In which case, election would be conditioned on foreseen faith. Faith that God foresaw in advance. But what does it say? But because of him who calls. Which means what? God's election of us is unconditional. Not conditioned on any foreseen good in us. That's the entire point that Paul referencing uh, Esau and Jacob in this moment, before they were born, and before they had done anything that could have biased God toward them in one way or the other, so that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand, he freely, sovereignly, and unconditionally elected Jacob. And so, election isn't only the sovereign and eternal predetermined choice of God, but it's also unconditional. It's not conditioned on foreseen faith or any other good seen in us. It's in spite of our sinfulness. That's the unconditionality of election. Now fourth, the outcome of election the outcome of election. And this is where we begin to see the immutability and efficaciousness of God's sovereign election. And we can stay right here in Romans for this. Back to Romans 8, 29 and 30. It says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. The immutable and infallibly efficacious outcome of sovereign election is expressed in two synonymous ways in these verses. In verse 29, it says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. And in verse 30, at the end, it says, And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Being conformed or predestined to conformity to Christ and glorification are referring to one and the same thing. Complete conformity to Christ and future final glorification are two ways of expressing the same reality. So the outcome of election is total conformity to the image of Christ. Future and final glorification when we are entirely removed from the presence of sin or when the presence of sin is entirely removed from us. And bound up in this is both certainty, immutability, and irresistibility. So one, election is certain. Though there is no all, it's necessarily implied. All those whom God foreknew, he also predestined. Or, according to the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. John 6, 37. Election is absolutely certain. And two, 
election is irresistible. Verse 30 says, and these whom he predestined, he also called. So we're sovereignly elected before the foundation of the world and effectually called at a divinely predetermined moment in time through the gospel. So God doesn't just predestine us to salvation in election. He even ordains the very moment that the gospel will come to us with power and the spirit will turn the lights on in regeneration and we will see the glory of Christ and believe on him and be saved, resulting in justification. It says there, and these whom he called, he also justified and culminating in glorification. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Election is absolutely irresistible. Which isn't to say that God in some way violates our will and makes us believe on Christ against our will, but is to say that he so acts upon us that we are made eager and willing at the first sight of Christ's glory to lay hold of him by faith. And so the immutable and infallibly efficacious outcome of sovereign election is future and final glorification. To hear this expressed elsewhere, listen again to Ephesians 1.4. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. We have a perfect record of righteousness. And in that position, that positional righteousness, there's a sense in which we are holy and blameless before God. But when everything is realized in glorification, we won't just have a positional righteousness. We'll have a practical righteousness, a perfectly practical righteousness, where we will actually walk in perfect righteousness for all eternity. Listen to Philippians 3:20 and following. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. There is coming a time when we are going to be conformed into the image of Christ, and election is the, the, the cause of that. Sovereign election, 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. When we see Christ, we'll see him just as he is and be made like him, totally, perfectly. And so in glorification, we reach the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, Philippians 3.14. Complete conformity to Christ. That's the outcome of election. Now, fifth and finally, the purpose of election, the purpose of election, and the ultimate purpose is what? It's the glory of God. This is about the praise of the glory of his grace. And I want you to see this. Turn back to Ephesians 1. I want you to see the way that Scripture relates salvation to this glorious grace 
and to the praise of it. And so in Ephesians 1, 5 and following, it says he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. And the beloved is? It's Christ. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. Look at the end of verse 10. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. Verse 13, in him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. And then Paul prays in verse 18, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. Paul wants us to comprehend this. The riches of the glory of the inheritance of God in the saints. And then look at chapter 2. Verse 4 and following. Amazing. It says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In the ages to come, that's, that's eternity. And so imagine that moment when all of the redeemed are in the very presence of Christ, her Savior, to actually experience the full fruition of everything that is promised in salvation where the, the forgiveness of sin, reconciliation with God, all of it is, is, is there and consummated. At that time, we will be experiencing, seeing the display of the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Can I get an amen? Amen. <laughs> That's the purpose of all of this. It's to glorify God. It's to put his glory on display. And we get to see and behold his glory and then praise him on account of it. To the praise of the glory of his grace. And so, not only is God sovereign in salvation and the ultimate cause of each person's eternal destiny, but he is also most glorified in sovereignly electing some for salvation while also sovereignly passing over others, guaranteeing his elect will be the beneficiaries of his saving grace, apart from which 
none would or could be saved. Rendering election, that aspect of God's eternal decree in which he freely and sovereignly elects certain individuals in union with Christ and in eternity past, purely for his own glory and good pleasure, apart from any good foreseen in them or us, to be saved from the penalty and power of sin and to inherit all of the blessings of salvation and eternal life through the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. Election is sovereign. It is eternal. It is unconditional. It is immutably and infallibly efficacious, and it serves the purpose of bringing great honor and glory to God. And as we close, you you might be in the place where you are wrestling with the fairness of this, that this may not fit your sensibilities for fairness. And Paul anticipates that on the heels of saying, Jacob, I love, but Esau, I hated. He anticipates the objection that's going to be raised up against the injustice of this. And so in Romans 9, verse 14 and following, he says, what shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? He says, may it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. God is not under obligation to anyone to show them mercy or compassion. He has every right in his justice, holiness, and sovereignty to send the entire human race into eternal hell. Verse 16, so then, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. Verse 18, so then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. And Paul anticipates the objection. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? Who can resist the will of God? How can can one still be found at fault? for merely fulfilling the the God-ordained will. Verse 20, on the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. There's no injustice. No one is entitled to salvation. No one is entitled to God's mercy and compassion. 
and God is glorified in the salvation of those whom he's marked out before the foundation of the world. And he is also glorified in his justice. That when those who go to the grave rejecting Christ enter into their eternal judgment and come under the just wrath of God for their sin, it is a glorious display of his justice and resounds to his glory. And so scripture anticipates the objections, the, the emotions, those aspects within us that want to resist this teaching of scripture and answers the dilemma or objection purely on the, the foundation of the sovereignty of God. He is right to do as he so pleases. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Well, Father, we thank you for this time in your word. We realize how small and insignificant we are. There may have been a time when we believed that you needed us for something. But under this doctrine, this teaching of your word, we realize that we are absolutely expendable. And Father, we long for your glory. We long for you to be glorified in all things. And so be glorified, we pray. For those who wrestle with this teaching, help them, assist them. We recognize the implications. Eternal judgment. We think of loved ones, friends. But Father, we know that you are sovereign and all things are for your glory. And we're willing to leave it there and put our hand over our mouth and acknowledge our insignificance. And so be glorified, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.